Hey, good morning. Grab your Bibles and turn to um, the book of Hebrews. We have been in this study, Fight for Focus, most of the fall, and we're going to be in Hebrews 6 this morning. If you need a Bible, just raise your hands. The ushers will give you a Bible. If you don't have one of your own, just keep that as a gift from us. And um, this morning, um, just so you kind of understand the rhythm of how we're going to be studying Hebrews 6, we're going to start, there's four points in your notes. We're going to go through two points really fast. Then we're going to take this really long field trip, and then we're going to close with two points at the end. And I tell you that because I remember when, rather than preaching, I was listening to preachers. If all of a sudden they went on some big rant in the middle, I'd be like, are you guys ever going to finish? Like, are we ever going to get through? So don't panic. I'll get you out of here on time, okay? But we're going to be looking at some passages back in Genesis. The verses are going to be on the screen. You can either turn there with me as I go through this, or you can read along Uh, with these other passages on the screen. As we've been studying through Hebrews and we conclude our study in Hebrews today, some of you are like, well, you're only through six chapters. Yeah, well, the hope is that we'll come back at some point next year, finish out the um, end of the book, but we want to take a break at this point for the holidays. But if you've been with us through the series, there's been kind of this back and forth. There's been weeks where the argument has been made really strongly that Jesus is better than Anything else that you could consider following, he's better than the prophets, he's better than the angels, he's better than the high priest, he's in the order of Melchizedek and some of these things that we've studied, but then in between these passages, there's been these really strong warnings, and there was in chapter two this, don't drift, and then last week, there was this idea of like, don't taste and then walk away. This can have terrible consequences, and I know even in our church body, as we've read the warnings, the warnings are so um, difficult to read, it's, it's scary, and we've been having conversations in the background with people saying, I want to make sure that I am a follower of Jesus Christ, so as we go through the passage this morning, I want to be very, very clear as we finish our study in Hebrews 6, what the author's intent is, is he warns these believers in a a small church going through persecution what it looks like to actually trust in the promises of God. So I'm going to jump in in Hebrews 6, verse 13. The first point is this. God's promises are guaranteed. God's promises are guaranteed. Hebrews 6, verse 13. For when God made uh, made a promise by Abraham... Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. So if if we're making a a promise to somebody and and I say, I promise I'll do this, but they still kind of look at us like they're, you're a little sketchy. I'm not sure you're going to keep your word. We, We can amp the promise by saying, well, like when you were a kid, I, I, I pinky swear. Did anybody used to do that? Or, or um, um, I, 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 I swear, you know, God help me. Or um, I swear on my mama's grave. Or um, I swear on my kid's life. Like we can put like amplifiers on our promise to show that we're sincere. The problem that the text is pointing out here, when God makes a promise, who does he swear by? To amp up the guarantee. It's like, I swear by, well, I made that. Like, like, like there's nothing higher than himself to swear by. So what he's doing here is he's saying, well, in the case of the promise to Abraham, he actually swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. 
to, to understand what that means, I've got to take you all the way back to Genesis 12. So if you want to follow along, grab your Bibles, turn to Genesis 12. We need to look at the life of Abraham because you won't understand what's going on in Hebrews 6 unless you get the background to what the author just said and why God swore by himself to Abraham. So I'm going to go all the way back to Genesis 12. I'm going to pick it up in verse 1 there. It says this, now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So the first thing in this encounter, this is God's first encounter with Abram, he tells him to go to leave his family. And to us, that's not a huge deal because it's not uncommon for us to transition because of jobs out of state. My family was in the Chicagoland area, Kristen and I, when we were Married, we moved to Michigan or to, to leave your parents. It's, it's a deal, but it's not a big deal. Back then, it was a huge deal because safety was in numbers. There wasn't a lot of law. This was a kind of wild time to live. Think kind of wild west. And your security, your safety was to stay with your family, with your clan. And so the idea that Abram would venture out on himself, uh, on his own, Man, man, that was almost suicide. He was putting himself in harm's way. Not only was he putting himself in harm's way, but by separating from his family, he was increasing the level of danger for the family members that stayed behind. So I can kind of imagine the conversation with Abram going to his dad, Tara, the next morning. And he's like, hey, dad, I need to talk to you. I, I heard from God last night. And uh, Tara would have started by saying, who's God? There was no record of following God. They might have followed many gods, but this wasn't a religious family by any means from what we can tell from the text. But like, who's God? Well, well, there's a God and he told me last night that I have to go. And I can imagine Tara was like, well, that's interesting because God appeared to me last night as well. And he told me, you need to stay and milk the cows, like get your chores done. So I can imagine that this is not an easy conversation for Abram to have with his father to say, hey, I'm going to go out and go into harm's way. And in leaving, I'm going to put you in harm's way. But God told him to go. And so Abram left. It says in verse two, God gives this promise, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there's several things that God has promised. He said, listen, I'm gonna give you a land and, and I'm gonna make you a blessing and I'm gonna bless you. Like who's all for that promise from God? Anybody want God to say to you, I'm gonna bless you? Like, like that's kind of what it's all about, right? And then through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so this is the promise that God has given to Abram. Abram decides to go. It says in verse four, so Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot with, went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from his family in Haran. And Aram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, his nephew, and all the possessions they had gathered and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Here's the second point. God's promises are guaranteed is point one. Here's the second. The guarantee is the blood. So 75 years old, Abram leaves his family. Genesis 12, 
You flip forward to Genesis 15, just three chapters later, 10 years have gone by, and it hasn't been an easy 10 years. He'd originally left with his nephew Lot, but we read in those intervening chapters, 13 and 14, that he and Lot separate. They, they kind of go their own ways. Um, Abram has to go down with his family to Egypt because of a famine. He's at war with other Canaanite kings and tribes. And at the end of chapter 14, we studied this earlier, um, he's approached by this high priest, Melchizedek. So all of that happens kind of between what we read in 12 as we approach 15. And as we get to chapter 15, here's the only thing I want you to know. There's been 10 years and there's no sign that God is keeping the promise that he made in chapter 12. Abram doesn't have any children. He, he has yet to have a land that is his own. And it says in Genesis 15, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household shall be my heir. So God continues to say that through the line of Abram, through his descendants, all of the nations of Israel will be blessed. He's going to make him a great nation. And Abram is saying, uh, God, I'm seeing a little um, hiccup in the plan. I don't have any kids. My wife is barren. My, my heir is my second cousin, Eliezer, from Damascus. I don't even like him. Like, like please tell me you're not going to fulfill the promises you've made through that guy. I don't know that that's exactly in the text, but I embellish a little bit. A <laughs> couple things I want you to notice. Um, Abraham has some questions for God, would you agree? I think his questions are legit, don't you? If you had left everything, if you had followed God for 10 years and you had seen no sign of the fulfillment of the promise, you, you might be wondering, and like, like God, when and how long until you're faithful to your promises? What I like about Abraham is he takes his questions directly to the Lord. And I don't think God's afraid of our difficult questions and Abram immediately says, God, like, I know you've made some promises. I don't understand. He refers to him as Lord. Like, I've followed. I've left home. I've done what you've said to do. I've been obedient. When am I going to see the fulfillment of the promises you made to me 10 years ago? I think that's a legit question. He brings it to God, and God's not afraid of his question. Look what he does. It's actually quite amazing. Verse 4 and behold, the word of the Lord came again to Abram. It says, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought Abram outside and said, look towards heaven, the number of the stars, if you were able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So he takes him outside and says, look at the stars. That's how your offspring are going to be. And please note what's said in verse 6. It's really important for our study. And Abram believed the Lord and, the Lord, and God counted it to Abram, his righteousness. Okay. What made Abram righteous? The text is really clear. Because he believed he had faith in the promises of God. More on that later. Last week, the warning from earlier in chapter 6, like, hey, warning, are, are you going to continue to believe the promises of God? Or, or are you going to walk away? 
Because once you've understood the promises of God and then you choose that because it's been too long, it's been too hard, you're not getting answers, you begin to doubt the promises. Well, it leads to a hardened heart. It's difficult to recover from that space. Abram presses God in verse 80, says, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? I followed, I'm continuing to follow, I'm believing the promises, but I gotta tell you, I'm struggling. Anyone ever been there? Like, I don't think this is a place that as followers of Jesus Christ that we don't sometimes find ourselves. Verse nine, God says to Abraham, bring me a heifer three years old and a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Now, Maybe those things are just sitting around. Like, I don't know, maybe he had to hunt. It's not clear to me. I don't even know how you tell how old a ram is, but he's got it, he brings them. And it says in verse 10, and he brought all of these, he cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. So so here's a question. Um, Picture the scene. Okay, he gets all of these animals and the text is really clear. He cuts them in half and he lays half an animal on this side, half an animal on this side. It's pretty gruesome. I mean, if you think about it, any any hunters in the room? Okay, so we got some hunters. So like, I've just gotten into hunting in the last three or four years. So when I say into hunting, I haven't shot anything. Okay, it's, it's more sitting in the woods Sometimes falling asleep. It's, it's, it's a lot of things, but it hasn't been a lot of shooting. And, uh, but I've been helping other guys find the deer that they shoot. So Thursday night, one of my friends is like, hey, I got a doe, I got to go find it, or a buck actually, I got to go find it. So we go to the place where he shots it, we find the blood, and we're like, we think it's right over there. And it was right over there if right over there is a mile and a half away and, and you find the deer and, and wow, this is so exciting. Like how fun is hunting? Do you know what you have to do next? There's nothing exciting about it. It's just gross. Well, that's kind of the scene here. It's, it's bloody, it's gory. And these two animals are put in two different lines and it becomes clear in the text, Abram goes to sleep. He, he's he's kind of like me. He's a hunter that sleeps. And it says in verse 17, it says, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And on that day, hear this, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I give this land. Okay, what's happened is significant. A a, a promise made in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 becomes a contract. Now there is a covenant that God has made. And what's the difference between a promise of God and a covenant with God? It's very, very simple. There's blood. And as God walks through the pieces of these animals, the, the visual here is it would be easier to put these animals back together and bring them back to life than it would be for me to go back on the promises that I make to you this day. That's what's being symbolized today. Hunters, you can gut a deer, okay? But it's impossible to ungut a deer. 
Once you've shot it, once it's dead, you can't put it back together and bring it back to life. It's impossible. And, and it's a visual. Hunters, this should be your visual every time you go hunting. Every time you get an animal and you're now processing the animal after it's been killed, it would be easier to bring that animal back to life than it would be for God to go back on his promises. And what I want you to note in the text, that God is the one that is walking between the animal animals. He is, in essence, cutting a deal or cutting a contract. Now, in a normal contract, if I enter into a contract with you to sell my car, there's consideration on both sides. Like, I'm going to give you my car, you're going to give me money for the car. There's things that each party is responsible to. In business law, they say that's consideration. But what's going on in this case is it's called a unilateral contract. There's only conditions or consideration on one party. One party is saying, I will do this irregardless of whether you do anything or not. God is making a promise into a covenant, and he says, the fulfillment of this contract only has terms and conditions on my side. And here's why I'm making a big deal about that, because I think sometimes as we consider the promises of God, as followers of Jesus Christ, our issue is that we don't trust God, it's that we don't trust us. And we look at the promises of God, and then we consider our track record of faithfulness, And the issue isn't whether we trust God or not. The issue is, I don't trust that I am someone who deserves to see the fulfillment of the promises of God. See, the issue's on my side. But in this case, the visual is clear. It doesn't matter who Abraham is, what he did. The dude's asleep. The covenant is made. God is saying, I will remain faithful to the things that I have promised And all of the conditions are on my side. That should bring us comfort as we move forward in our faith, stumble back, move forward, stumble back, that God is always faithful to his promises. Here's the big idea this morning. It's this, be assured God's promises are as sure as the blood of Jesus. Be assured God's promises are as sure as the blood of Jesus. Okay, let's keep going on this field trip. Genesis 17. Genesis 17, 1, it says this in the first verse. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. Okay, so from the moment that he has been told, leave your family, I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to make you a blessing, it's been 24 years. 24 years Abram has followed Verse 15 of Genesis 17, God says to Abram, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. He goes on and says, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations, kings of people shall come from her. Okay, verse 17, and Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Are are you noticing the ages? He's going to be a hundred years old. His wife's going to be 91 years old. And here's what happens. For those of you who know the story of Genesis, people lived longer back then, right? So you're like, oh, I don't know if a hundred's really that old to have kids and 
I don't know if 90 is old for a woman to have kids, and maybe I'm just confused by the math because of how long people lived. Um, as we continue to move through the text, every time age is mentioned, an additional emphasis is going to be put on how old they were. The point of the text is they're really old. Turn to your neighbor and say they're too old. <laughs> they are way too old to have kids. You're 100 years old and your first kid comes along? Like, I'm in my 50s. I'm at grandparent stage, okay? The idea of trying to raise a kid in my 50s, I got to be careful because I'm sure there's a 50-year-old with a young kid and I'm just going to get myself in trouble. Oh my goodness, I'm, I, praise the Lord for your energy. That's all I would say, okay? But this is double that. He's 100 years old and he laughs. Verse 21, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Flipping to chapter 18, there's a Christophany that happens in chapter 18. This is the appearance of Jesus Christ before his incarnation. It says that the Lord approaches Abram and he recognizes him. He's seen him before because he's talked to him in chapter 12, chapter 15. And so Christ comes to Abram in chapter 18. He brings with him two angels and they eat together. And in verse 9 of chapter 18, they say to Abram, where is Sarah, your wife? And she says, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old. There it is again, right? They're old. Advanced in, in years. Uh, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Okay, the text is making something clear. They're old. Okay? So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out, they're old. And, the Lord, and my Lord is old. Shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abram, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Verse 14, is anything too hard for God? That word hard could also be translated wonderful. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And he looks at Abram, he says, is anything too wonderful for God? Fast forward several hundred years, there'll be this prophet by the name of Isaiah and he'll write in chapter nine of Isaiah of a coming Messiah and he will be called wonderful counselor. Same word. Is anything too hard or wonderful for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. Verse 15, but Sarah denied it saying, I didn't laugh for she was afraid. And the Lord said, no, but you did laugh. <laughs> she, she's so busted. And, um, and, and so this, this is so remarkable what the Lord is promising that you have to believe that sometimes when we consider the promises of the Lord, we're just like, there's no way. There's, there's no way that what he's promised has been true. That's what Sarah and Abraham are experiencing, but they have faith in the promises of God, so they laugh, saying, isn't our God amazing? Chapter 21 says this, and the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Psalm 127.3 tells us that children are a gift from the Lord. It says in verse two, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time that God had spoken to him, just as God had promised. 
Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, who Sarah bore him, Isaac. That means laughter. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh or rejoice over me. So 25 years after the original promise of God was given to Abram, 15 years after the covenant of God, when it seemed completely impossible that God could actually keep his word, sometimes God's late with his promises. It seems late. I promise you he's always on time. God will always be faithful to the promises that he has made. And, and so they now reap the blessings of the promise of God. That's chapter 21. And you know the rest of the story and they all lived happily ever after, right? Well, maybe not so much. Go forward one chapter to chapter 22. It says this, and after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. And God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. We don't know Isaac's age. He's not a toddler because he's going to carry wood up the mountain. Maybe he's in his teens, maybe he's in his 20s. It's, it's unclear how old Isaac is at this point. But God is, in essence, telling Abram, hey, remember that promise that I made to you that took so long to fulfill? In Isaac is the encapsulation of every promise God has ever made to Abram. And he says, I want you to take him up onto the mountain and sacrifice him. It says that God tested Abraham. I don't think the test was so that God would learn something that he didn't already know about Abraham. I think the test was actually so that Abraham would learn something about the faithfulness of his God. The text goes on and says that God told him to go and as illogical and difficult as that seemed, Abraham went. He gets up early the next morning and he goes... I don't want, because for some the story is familiar, for you to dehumanize the story and miss the anguish and agony in this father's heart. In, in essence, what God has just said is he has said, take your son, bring him up on the mountain, put him on the altar, gut him, let his blood run down the altar, and then light him on fire. I have two sons. I'm a father. What? In that moment, is it possible for Abraham to believe that God is good? That God is loving? Serious doubts, serious questions would enter and race through my mind but you promised. And now this, and the text is just rough, verse seven. Isaac says to his father, Abraham, my father, and Abraham says, here am I, my son, and Isaac says, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? 
Abraham says, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abram built the altar there and laid wood on the altar and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. He bound his son. I can't imagine what this moment was like. I can't imagine Isaac willingly laid himself on the altar Did Abraham have to overpower his son, the child of promise, and he bound him and put him on the altar? What was he thinking? The text doesn't tell us, but it's interesting. The author of Hebrews does. In Hebrews 11.7, it says, in 11.17, it says, by faith Abraham when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises when he was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said through Isaac, shall your offspring be named. Verse 19, he considered that God was even able to raise him up from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So as Abram sits in the agony of that moment, in the anguish of that moment, Is God good? Is he for me? His faith is cemented so strongly in his God that he says, if God is asking me to sacrifice Isaac, he'll raise him from the dead. And I don't understand it, and I don't know how, but here's one thing that I know for sure. God keeps his promises. And God made an oath. Verse 10 of Genesis 22, then Abram reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here am I. And the angel said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abram lifted his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abram sent or went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt sacrifice instead of his son, a substitute. Someone to die in Isaac's place, a a ram, a lamb in place of his son. Genesis 22, verse 15, and the angel of the Lord called to Abram a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. (laughs) There it is. I've been looking for that phrase for 11 chapters. In Hebrews 6, it said that God made a promise and he swore by himself. You need to understand when it happened. It happened after 25 years of promise, then oath, then testing. And then God said, I'll swear by myself. One more stop on our field trip before we get back to Hebrews 6. Let me read you from Romans 4. Speaking of Abraham, it says, In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, because he was old, since he was 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Verse 20, this is unbelievable. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 23, this is important. 
but the words was counted, was, was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. Okay, now we're ready to return to Hebrews 6. Here's the third point. The blood is our refuge. The blood is our refuge. Verse 15, and thus Abram, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise. So he's not just trying to show something to Abraham, he's trying to show it to the heirs of the promise. And the promise was that all the nations of the world would be blessed. So connecting the dots, Abraham will have Isaac, Isaac will have Jacob, Jacob will have Joseph, generations will pass, there'll be this King David who has offspring and another thousand years, and then there's this young gal by the name of Mary who's going to give birth to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who's going to be a blessing to all nations. So the promise that he's making in Hebrews 6 is not just to Abram, but it's to us as well. We are heirs of the promise. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, what is the purpose of God? It's the gospel. It's to provide a a way of redemption so that broken, sinful, lost people can be reunited to a holy God who loves them with an ever-chasing love. The unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, his promise and his oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Throughout Hebrews, don't drift, don't walk away, don't taste, and then leave. Hang in there, endure, Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. Don't lose hope. This urging of the author to say, don't give up. Don't allow yourself to believe that the promises of God are not true. He has made promises. He has sworn by himself. He cannot lie. And it's the promises of God that provide us with a refuge. And the way that we know that it's true is because he didn't just promise it. He sealed it with a covenant for that covenant to happen, blood was shed. Luke will record for us that when Jesus Christ had his last supper with his disciples, Jesus took the cup after dinner and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. In 1 Peter, Peter will argue that we have not been redeemed or we have not been bought with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, the blood is the proof of the promises that God has made. Now, now when I was growing up in a Baptist church, we used to love to sing the old hymns, and there was this hymn, we'd actually sang it here at this church, and the lyrics go like this. It was written all the way back in 1772, and it says, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Anybody recognize this one? And sinners plunged beneath the flood. Anybody know the next line? 
lose all their guilty stains, right? You got it, Mike. Okay, can we pause for a minute? Think of what I just said. That's a ghastly visual. (laughs) Scares the young Baptist 10-year-old kid to death. Like, who came up with that visual picture? A fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and anyone who's plunged beneath it loses their stains? Can't we do a little less ghastly than that? The writer of that hymn was emphasizing that the blood of Jesus Christ is the guarantee of the promises of God and it is not just a theoretical promise, it is on full display because it's more than a promise. He made a blood covenant. God does what he says that he will do. Here's the last point. Our anchor is the cross. Hebrews 16, or, or Hebrews 6 Verse 19, we have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place beyond the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's interesting, in these last few verses of Hebrews 6, he's throwing all of these visuals at us, that that Jesus is a shelter, he is a refuge that we can run to for protection. He brings it back and says that he's a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. I want to focus on the middle one, that he is a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. The analogy of an anchor, I don't want to insult your intelligence by being overly simplistic, but there's a couple things that are important if Jesus is going to be a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul. For an anchor to work, it has to be attached to you. If if you are out in a boat, and you have an anchor on the boat and the boat begins to drift and you drop the anchor into the water, it's really important that the anchor is connected to a rope that is connected to the boat. I have dropped an anchor overboard connected to a rope that wasn't tied to the boat. I don't know if anyone else has done that. It's ineffective. It's not that the anchor doesn't hold. I'm sure it's down there holding. (laughs) It's just not doing me a lot of good, okay? My point being really clear, if God is going to be a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul and the anchor is the cross of Jesus Christ, are you connected? Are you tethered? Have you accepted the work that Jesus Christ did on your behalf on the cross? And then for an anchor to be effective, it has to be able to go somewhere that I cannot go. So if, if I'm on a boat and the boat begins to drift, but I have something solid like a pole that I can grab onto, I don't need the anchor. I can just grab it for myself. But I drop the anchor in the water. I could also go in the water. I suppose I could swim. I don't know if you know this, but an anchor, it doesn't hold you and keep you from drifting because it's in the water. The anchor has to go to the bottom of the water where I can't go and grab onto something that I can't cling to. So for an anchor to work, it has to be connected to me and it has to go somewhere that I cannot go. 
And so what the author of Hebrews is saying is Jesus has gone behind the veil. It's a reference to the Old Testament, the holy of holies, the place where God dwelled, the place where the priest could only enter once a year, the, the place that nobody could approach without dying. And it's saying Jesus is a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul because he's connected himself to us by becoming like us and going to the cross in our place. And he has gone somewhere we cannot go. He has accomplished for us something that we cannot complete. And he now dwells and prepares for us a place we will one day go. Jesus is our sure and steadfast anchor. As a pastor, occasionally I'll talk to somebody who struggles to believe that there is a God. I'm not trying to convince you in this moment that there is a God. The argument I would make is if Jesus isn't who he said he is, and if he hasn't done what he's done, what in the world are you going to anchor yourself to in this world that is going to hold you securely? People anchor themselves to stupid stuff. They believe they have the power to hold on their own. They believe in the anchor of success. They believe in the anchor of stuff or substances or sex or whatever that they believe will be a sure and steadfast anchor for their soul. Jesus Christ is the only anchor that I can point you to that holds because the promises of God always stand. Do we believe that? And as I close, I just ask you this. As I was preparing this week, and I'm thinking back on everything that we've studied in the book of Hebrews, I've got to believe that there's some people in the room right now who are tired of waiting to see God's promises real in their life. And they say, listen, the storm's been crashing, this has been difficult, and the reality is I'm beginning to doubt and lose confidence in the promises of God. And the author of Hebrews would say, look at Abraham, hang in there. He never disappoints. His promises are true. There could be others in the room who are saying, I'm hanging in there. I'm doing my best to hold on. But the reality is, in the middle of the storm, I'm struggling. And I need encouragement. And I need someone to pray with me to help me hold on. And I've got some questions and I'm, God just doesn't seem good in the midst of my circumstances. Pray with someone. Take your concerns and your fears and your doubts to God in prayer. Maybe my biggest concern would be this, that there would be some in the room who've never anchored themselves to the redemptive work that Jesus Christ did for us on the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you were to look at your life, you would say, okay, I, I might attend church or I, I show up sometimes, but the reality of the cross of Jesus Christ does not impact my every day. And as we've studied through Hebrews, one of the things that is a takeaway for me, all of these visuals throughout history to demonstrate to us that the promises of God are true, that Jesus is better, that he's worth it, to don't lose hope, to don't drift. So I'm going to close this service a little different than we normally do. I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads. 
I don't know where you're at. I don't know the condition of your heart. But as we leave this series, I believe that it's, it's right, it's proper to just take a moment and cry out to Jesus and say, God, even when it's hard, I'm going to trust you. If you say go, I want to follow. Even when I don't understand, even when it's difficult, increase my faith, Lord. The problem isn't in God's promises. The problem isn't that he doesn't love you. Sometimes I think we just need to bend the knee to what's real. That we have a God who has made some promises and God always keeps his word. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that um, we can look back to Genesis and it's not just history. But on every page you were there, you were being faithful. You were showing us through the lives of men who have preceded us that you are worth trusting. Father, I thank you in this moment for your promises. I thank you for the cross. I thank you for your promise that we can stand forgiven, accepted. And that we bumble our way along, stumbling to do what's right, struggling and waging a battle against sin. And sometimes we're just so disappointed, not in you, but in ourselves, that it's hard for us to believe that the promises could apply to us. You gave your word. You swore by yourself. You made a blood covenant. You demonstrated your love. And for that, we praise your name. It's in the great name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.